second. I've got it all out here, and uh, we'll, we'll get to it in a bit. But first I want to, uh, I want to read you a couple um, scenarios, okay? Because we're talking about decision-making today, uh, and I want you to, I want you to uh, consider these couple scenarios. And these are taken out of the book that some of the people have been reading. So lots of people have been in small groups studying this material. Lots of people have, also, have made the commitment they're just going to make sure they hear all the podcasts through this series. Uh, whatever commitment level you've jumped in at, that's awesome. And, uh, but one of the commitments that was sort of an above and beyond one was there's a book you could read, a daily reading book. You can still get it. It's just 10 bucks at the info desk. But I've been reading it and I took two stories out of that book that I thought were really helpful in regard to this whole idea of total commitment. A 32-year-old engineer named John loves to go to estate sales and look for antique furniture and other potentially valuable items. And one weekend, he goes to an estate sale in the southern part of the United States. And all the items in this particular house are being sold together for a single price. Visitors are welcome to make a bid, and John learns that the winning bid will be about $95,000. The house is old, in disrepair, and probably built during the Civil War period. And John, a self-confessed geek and history buff, recognizes a collection of rifles that seem to be from that time frame. So he goes downstairs to a damp basement, and using a small pocket flashlight, he finds an old roller-top desk... And going through the desk, he discovers a false drawer. And he opens the false drawer, and in it is a small leather pouch that contains 22 very rare pure gold coins minted by the Confederate Army during the Civil War. They could be worth millions of dollars, he believes. So John has to make a decision. What should he do? He has $10,000 in savings. If he can sell his car, his house, and everything he owns, he believes he can come up with the $95,000 and make the winning bid. What would you do? Have you figured it out? Story number two. Sheila, a 20-something a 20-something college art teacher at a community college was traveling in Europe over the summer. She had even started a small art collection of her own on her limited salary. And while in a small village in southern France, well off the beaten path, Sheila went to an auction where the locals had all donated family art to be sold to help finance the construction of a much-needed school. One painting topped the list and was said to be a rare but highly valued copy of Picasso's work. It was deemed as a non-original because the signature at the bottom was different from all his other works. Sheila, however, wrote her master's thesis on Picasso and was aware that in the first year of his work, he did not sign his name but only put his initials there. She looked and studied the painting carefully and came to the conclusion that she actually was in the presence of a priceless piece of art. It was believed there were only two or three of these paintings in existence anywhere in the world. If this were so, Sheila was standing before something worth a very great deal of money. The $25,000 asking price was a joke regarding to what it was worth, but it was even a bigger joke with her income. What Sheila would have to do was she'd have to sell her Honda Civic, sell her entire art collection, and withdraw her entire savings of $600. 
what should Sheila do? And what would you tell her to do? Have you made your decision for that one? Now, let me add to the story. In fact, let me just tell you the rest of the story. The coins are real, and they're worth about 30 to $40 million. The Picasso is real, and it's worth about $100 million. So the rewards are great. In fact, they're over the top. But the costs and the risks are very high as well. So now if you had that information, what would you do? And why? Now I tell you these stories, and they're in the book if you're reading along. I tell you these stories because I think it leads us into the kind of thinking we need to have when we begin to engage Jesus' teachings on whether or not you should really jump in with him in the kingdom or not. As Jesus himself made up two little stories about this, and they're found in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 44 to 46. So Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46 is, is these two little stories that Jesus told. And you'll see it has some similarities to these stories I just told you. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a merchant looking for a fine pearls. When he, find, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So Jesus had, let me just give you a bit of a backdrop. Jesus had been coming along teaching people about the kingdom of heaven. This new kingdom. Now they knew about earthly kingdoms. They knew about Rome, which was the dominant empire of the time. Roman soldiers were in many of the nations, and including where Jesus was in, in Israel. And they were, they were in control. So they knew about kingdoms and empires. But he was teaching them about a new kingdom where God rules instead of earthly powers. And life in this kingdom was different than life in the kingdoms that people knew about. Uh, life in this kingdom was really modeled how to live by Jesus. Life in this kingdom, you, if you lived in this kingdom, if you were under the rule of, of God as your king, then you would live like Jesus did. And Jesus was loving and kind and holy and radically different from all the other teachers and leaders they'd ever encountered before. Seems like everywhere that Jesus went, it either ended up in a riot or a revival. But people weren't unaffected by Jesus. It wasn't just blasé, like whatever. Wherever Jesus went, there was a significant impact. And people were beginning to follow him, but as they began to follow him, it forced them into making some pretty big decisions. Decisions about the way they used to think and what they used to value. Decisions that would affect their relationships. Decisions that would affect how they used their time and money and decisions that would affect their future. So Jesus tells them these two stories. Let me read them to you again, but I'll just read the first one and, and we'll just get it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. So let's stop there. A man finds a treasure. Now this would have been a story people could have related to because evidently in that time people would 
hide a treasure, maybe it was their, you know, the money that they hoped to pass on to their kids or grandkids, they would actually hide it in a field. It wasn't, you know, they didn't have access to a bank or something like that. They would, they would take whatever their treasure was and they could bury it. And as long as they remembered to tell their kids before they died, the kids would get it. And if they forgot, then maybe it would just be hidden in a field for some stranger to find. Anyhow, this man finds a treasure hidden in a field. So that's the first thing. A man finds a treasure. The second thing, when the man found it, he hid it again. Okay, so the man, he finds the treasure, he sees how much worth it has, and he buries it again. Okay? Then the third thing. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. So he has an emotional response to finding this treasure. An emotional response. He's absolutely exhilarated and joyful that he is going to come into all this money. But in order to do that, he has to sell everything so that when he owns the field, he'll get the treasure inside. So that's the the gist of the story. And And the one about the pearl is very similar. Guy collects pearls, finds a pearl that's worth more than any pearl he's ever, he trades in all of his so he can get the one great pearl. So here's the point. Jesus is saying, when you understand who I am, when you understand how life really works and what really, really matters for now and forever, and you begin to understand the incredible treasure it is to have relationship with me and with the Father, how great the plans that, that, that God has for you on this earth you would logically, with reckless abandon and overwhelming joy, willingly give up everything else to get that. When you understand what God has for you, when it becomes clear to you, the plans God has for you, all that I have for you, when you understand that, you would willingly and with joy and with exuberance give away everything if you could only have that. Or, to put it another way, as we said already, total commitment is the channel through which God's biggest and best blessings flow. So, what was his motive, the man who finds the treasure in the field? What was his motive? His desire was to have the greatest joy possible. Found a treasure, realized it was, he did a quick evaluation on the spot. This treasure is worth more than everything I own. If I took everything I own and I sold all of it, I could possibly buy this field. And if I had this field, I would have the treasure, which is worth more than all that I have. Let's go back to our our friends, John and Sheila. Do you think of them as especially godly? John, the engineer who found the Civil War coins, sold all that he had and got them, ended up with $30, $40 million. You think, that man is godly. What a spiritual giant. What about Sheila? Needed to pay 25000 to get this, 
this Picasso that nobody knew was real, but she knew, and it was worth $100 million. Do you think, what a martyr. Oh, how she sacrificed her Honda Civic. She probably named that car. How many women name their cars? Come on, just admit it, just admit it. All right. Is that what you're thinking? No, 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 no. You're thinking, I wish I knew stuff like that. I wish I had opportunities like that. I would like to be in that story for real. I'd like to be John or I'd like to be Sheila. I'd like to get that opportunity and to have the knowledge I need to evaluate an opportunity and take full advantage of it. Those people are shrewd. They're wise. They're logical. They make incredible decisions. I'd like to be like that. It is amazing to me how when you take a scenario like that, something becomes very crystal clear. When the reward so far outweighs the risk, we look at it and we go, well, that's a no-brainer. $95,000 to buy a house is nothing like 30, 40 million. $25,000 is nothing like 100 million. When we stand back and look at it, we say, this is a no-brainer. But let me now ask you to honestly evaluate. At the beginning, when I asked you what you would do, what would you have done? See, it's possible for people to believe something is true, really believe something is true, but not act on it. Because it's, it's, knowledge is one thing. One thing is to go, okay, I'm confident that this is true. I'm pretty sure every, all, everything I read, everything I know, everything I've studied, everything I've learned, every, you know, this seems like this is true. And yet, there's an extra element that takes for you to step out and actually act on it, to pull the trigger and do something about it. And that's faith. So knowledge is one thing, really helpful. But faith is the second thing. So there'd be lots of people who'd be like, I'm totally confident this is the right move. I, you know, like, have you ever talked to somebody and say, man, I was telling people they should have bought Apple stock like 10 years ago. I'm like, did you buy it? No, but I told people they should buy it. <laughs> you had knowledge, but lacked faith. And the result is the same as the people who didn't have knowledge. When you come to the stories that Jesus tells, it's basically the same scenario. The same thing. There's a risk. There's a sacrifice. But there's a reward that so outweighs the risk and the sacrifice that people joyfully make that decision to give up all, to have what God's got for them. You know what the amazing thing is? Is that you can look at God's kingdom through different lenses, can't you? You can look at giving up everything, or as the verse says today, let's see if we can find it here, uh, offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. You can look at something like that. You can look at total commitment, total surrender to God, and you can look at it through a negative lens. 
You can even make this kind of commitment, but make it through a negative lens. And you know what? I've actually found amazing in my life how much I have viewed commitment to God uh, focused on the sacrifice end and not the reward end. For example, um, so first time I was ever asked about uh, my faith as a kid, I was like in grade three or four, some friends I was walking home from school said, your family's pretty religious, aren't they? And I said, oh yeah, my mom and dad make me go to church. (laughs) Now the truth of it was I did have a budding, beginning relationship with God and I loved God. Those boys didn't know that sometimes when I rode my bike, I would sing the songs I learned at church and I would worship God in my own little kid way. It was real. There was something real that had started, but I didn't want those guys to pick on me. or So my initial, you know, presentation of the gospel to the world was, yeah, my parents made me go to church. (laughs) Not terribly compelling, but, you know, it was what was working for me at the time, I thought. I remember getting to Bible college years later, first year of Bible college, first semester, and uh, my uh, RA comes in. His name was Rob Parkman. Some of you guys might know him. He came into my room, and, he, and he's, so he looks at me as a freshman, and he said, uh, you know, it's Bible college. You know, they ask each other spiritual questions there. It's just really, that's what the environment's like, right? So he walks into my room, and he said, Steve, how's your relationship with God? And I started to tell him, oh, man, I'm not a very disciplined person. I struggle to do, like, daily reading of the Bible and prayer and stuff like that. It's, it's, I'm not very good at that and stuff. That's what I told him. And then he said, actually, I was asking you about your relationship with God, not your self-disciplines. That weirded me out because I'd never seen the two being different. So I was like, didn't know what he was talking about, really. I was just like, okay. And then later on, this is when I was just starting out as a pastor, when I just started becoming, I was a pastor, I was actually walking with an older pastor out at a Bible camp, and he came in and he said, Steve, how's your relationship with God? Well, since first year Bible school to then, I had developed some sort of disciplines, not tons, but some, and I, and I you know, so what I said to him, I said, well, you know, compared to a lot of my peers who aren't really living for God, I, you know, feel like I'm doing pretty well. And he was really shocked, and he said, Steve, it's not a competition, it's a relationship. Like, what is wrong with you? I was like, oh yeah, you're right. What it dawned on me was that I measured my relationship with God based on what I was doing on my end of the relationship. So if I wasn't reading the Bible much or praying much, then I was like, well, my relationship with God is not very good. Or if I was reading the Bible more or, you know, really committed in serving God like I was at a different season in life, then I'm doing pretty good. But I was still focused on the one end of the relationship. I was focused on the sacrifice end of the relationship. Right? Somehow in my mind, I'd viewed this um, treasure in a field as not the defining part of the relationship. I viewed the going and selling all as being the defining part of the relationship. So, for example, when I did well, I viewed myself as a noble soldier. You know, one of God's extreme marines (laughs) who rose to the challenge and sacrificed everything for God because I'm a good person. 
And somehow that was flawed. And then when I did bad, I felt myself as a person who failed to live up to certain standards and, you know, so God must not be happy with me and things weren't good. I was viewing my relationship with God through a negative lens. I was viewing it only through the beginnings, the cost, through the, the sacrifice, and I wasn't thinking about the reward. Now, what's changed since then? Somewhat, but only in part, I believe God's still working on me in this, is that I've experienced more and more and more of the grace of God in my life. And as I've been focusing more and more on the grace of God in my life, I've noticed my words begin to change. For example, this week, I'm sitting at... Um, uh, Smitty's on the highway, and I'm, I'm working on this message. Anyhow, I, I get a booth in the corner. I ask the waitress, can I get, like, sort of a quiet spot in the restaurant? Yeah, sure. She gives me a nice spot. So I eat there, and I, I work on my stuff. And then when I go to leave, it's late at night, like 1030 or whatever. She let me stay an extra half hour. And I'm, I'm just at the till, and she says, oh, so uh, are you a student at SIAST? And I was really excited because... It's better than being asked, which high school do you go to? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was really pleased. <laughs> I'm really aging well. Anyhow, so, <laughs> so I, I said to her, well, actually, I'm a pastor of one of the churches in town, the, you know, the one closest to BPs, and... Uh, and she said, oh, she didn't even blink or anything. She just sort of said, oh, and how's that for you? Or, or maybe she said, how do you like that or whatever like that. You know, something like that. And I just said, I love it. I love it. Just came out of my mouth. I love it. By the way, I, I do love it. I really love it. And then the thing that hit me was as I was driving home, because we talked about other things, her aspirations to go to university and all these different things. It was really great. It was more about her after that. But as I was driving home, I thought, now what if she asked me a more normal question, like not about being a pastor, but more about being a follower of Jesus? Because that's something we could all relate to. And I thought, what if she asked me about being a follower of Jesus? Would I, would I, would I have said to that? How, well, how's that, being a follower of Jesus? I thought, I still would have probably said, I love it. And then I asked myself a third question. I thought, would I have only said I loved it because I'm trying to be a good salesman for God? So that took me to an even deeper place, and this is it. Sometimes people will even be super positive when they're talking to people who aren't followers of Jesus about what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. But then when they talk to other followers of Jesus, they go negative. Have you noticed that in yourself? I've noticed it in me. So it's like, What's it like being a Christian? Oh, it's awesome. So great. God loves you. It's amazing. And, you know, he's always with you. And, you know, he just sacrificed for you. So, you know, all oh, this is awesome. Right? You talk to another believer. How's your relationship with God? Not very good. Oh, it's hard to follow God. I'm such a martyr. Every day giving up for God. But I've renounced all to enter this life of exceeding joy. <laughs> The problem I've discovered for me in a lot of this is that I'm focused on the wrong end of things. I'm focused on the wrong end of the exchange and the wrong end of the relationship. So if I'm focused, so there's this trade. Give up all and you get way more. A treasure that's worth giving up all for. So that, that's, there's this exchange. But then the wrong end of the relationship. 
So say, how's your relationship with God? I actually, now I'm, I'm trying to discipline myself to really think this way and to focus on this, not just to be a, like this is a, you know, a speaking piece or something that you use, you know, when you're talking to people or an angle or something, but for it to be really real in my life, to focus in on the fact that at the other end of this relationship is the most wonderful, and I'm going to say person in quotes because it's God, that you could ever relate to. My default answer really, how's your relationship with God? Duh. On the other end of the relationship is God. It's awesome. Me? Huh? Up, down, sometimes. But on the other end of the relationship is God. If you can't relate to this, let me give you a quick, imagine, okay, guys, imagine you know, you and your sort of average buddies from high school, you get back for a reunion and you find out that one of these average buddies that you were all just hanging out with and you weren't anything special has married like the, you know, the top cheerleader at the school or something like that. She's like amazingly beautiful and she's so generous and she's totally into him and she's just loving him and, and, and she happens to be rich and drives a sports car, which she, he drives all the time now that they're married and it's just awesome and they have all beautiful children and... and and you go, hey, what's it, what's it like being married to Cindy? It's hard, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite a martyr. I gave up all those other girls for her. Yeah, that's me. Noble, a good guy. You would go, you schmuck. You don't even get it, do you? On the other end of the relationship is God. So if you can look at John and Sheila and say, wow, they are shrewd and smart and they made a good decision. People have chosen to offer their lives to God and in return get God's best and biggest blessings, you could say, they're noble soldiers, they sacrifice much, but you know what? Probably even better, you could just say, they're shrewd, they're wise, they're good at evaluation. They realized that something was worth more than something else and they chose the greater value. They actually chose the thing that would bring them the greatest joy. So did they sacrifice? Is there something noble and good and soldier-like about it? Oh, yeah. But there's also the positive end relationship. They get God. Total commitment is the channel through which God's biggest and best blessings flow. Listen to some of the people who've made this total commitment, what they say about it. This is C.S. Lewis. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. First thing I'd like to say to you is just, you don't have to settle. You don't have to settle. You can reach out and grab for that treasure of God's best. Don't be too easily pleased by something that's not as good. Listen to how the Apostle Paul said it. He said, but what, whatever, were, this is Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul saying, I made an evaluation. I looked at all I had going for me, and he had a lot going for him. And then I looked at the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The worth of this surpassed this, so I willingly gave all of this up. I evaluated the two and found one much more valuable. It surpassed the value of the other. A.W. Tozer said this, The whole outlook of humankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, although exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. Your outlook could be totally transformed if that knowledge of God's desire to be in relationship with you not just a truth that you give mental assent to and say, yeah, I know that's true, but something that you in faith step out and put your whole weight on. Through total commitment, you say, God, you, you have good things in store for me. You don't just desire for me to be a, a slave or a servant. You desire for me to be in a friendship with you. You decide for me to be in a relationship with you. Jim Elliott said it this way. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Another way of saying it would be like, you've got assets and liabilities. Mostly what you have is liabilities. But there's this one great surpassing treasure, this incredible asset that's worth giving up all your liabilities for or what you think are assets. And that's what God has for you. He's no fool. Jim is saying, this person who makes this exchange is smart. They're wise. Not just IQ, but they're making good decisions. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. How about the psalmist? Psalm 8411. And this is probably the one that addresses our big fear in this whole area. What's our big fear? The big fear is, if I give myself to God, if I totally surrender to him, what if his plan for me is terrible? Huh? If I give myself to God, what if, what if I have to give up this and that and other things? All the things that I'm sort of leaning on to try to prop me up and, and try to give me some measure of, of happiness or, or solace in this life. What if he takes away all the props? 
Can I trust God? Can I trust God? Listen to Psalm 8411. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now you might be like, oh good, I get to keep all my props. I get to, I get to still lean on them and, and find life from them. No, actually, God wants you to find your life from him. He wants you to find the life that is really life, a greater source of life, true life. Not artificial, temporary, shakable, removable, untrustworthy props. So what he does is this incredible process he takes us through, and it's step by step. It's not usually all at once, but step by step he takes us through, and and there's things where he does, you know, does inventory in our lives, really. Here, hand me that. Oh, not this. No, just hand me that. But what are you going to do with it? Are you going to take it away? Just hand me that. Oh, but I want to know the end. Are you going to take it away or give it back? Because I've heard that sometimes you just give it back, and it's just a test. Is it just a test? You're just testing me, right? Just give me that. No, 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 no. I want to know the end of the story. No good thing will I withhold. Okay. So, so sometimes he does take things out of our lives. He, the cool thing is he does that as he changes our hearts so that we come back to see those things years later and go, wow, I valued that. I treasured that. I embraced that like it was so wonderful. I can't even believe when I look at it now with God's perspective how insignificant that is and how God has given me something so much greater. The no good thing he with, that he doesn't withhold may be much better things than what you're currently holding. And sometimes he does this incredible thing too where you surrender and really everything eventually goes through that inventory process with God. What about this? What about that? And sometimes it's really good things, and you give them to God, and you're like, whoa. Like, this is it's not sinful or evil or, I, I, really? Jesus? You, and you give it to him, and then you're like, okay, I surrendered that even. And a lot of times I've experienced in my life where then he goes, okay, now you can have this back because we know it's not an idol. It's not taking the place that I deserve in your life, and then I can truly give you the life. So here's our verse for the week. We're going to end with it. We did it last week. You say, why, we didn't move on to a new verse. Well, we're not supposed to yet. Next week we will go to Romans 12 too. Okay? I thought it was interesting in the service that when uh, Doug Sigelko's video announcement with that awesome bass beat, me and my son were dancing, uh, kicked in, that this one knocked down. And I thought, thank you, Lord. That's a sermon illustration I need to use. See, this is all true. This is actually all true without that statement. Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, what's missing? In view of God's mercy. To offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you said, even, you know what? You could urge someone to say, hey, you know what? Offer your body to God as a living sacrifice, as true and proper worship. You could say that. But sometimes we forget about this part. That we need eyes to see what God has done for us. 
Romans chapter 12 comes after Romans chapter 1 to 11. And Romans chapter 1 to 11 tells us again and again and again and again what God has done for us. How he saw us wrapped up in brokenness and selfishness. And he loved us. How he saw us while we were still antagonistic towards him, indifferent towards him, didn't want anything to do with him. And he loved us. And he showed incredible mercy to us. That he initiated relationship with us before we did anything. We didn't even give anything to him. We didn't even go towards him at all. He made the first step. He initiated relationship with us. In fact, he didn't just initiate it barely like, hey, how's it going? He went all the way in initiating relationship through Christ's death on the cross. Imagine someone coming into your life and saying, instead of saying, hey, how are you? I'd like to get to know you. And then as I get to know you, then there'll be a bit of give and take, and then more give and take, and if we trust each other, there'll be more give and take, and then eventually we might become really good friends. Well, they're actually describing actually how it really works in our lives. God's very different. God comes along and it's like, I know right now you can't respond. That's what Romans tells us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we were Something inside us was spiritually dead. So I know you can't respond in this relationship yet. And a lot of what I'm about to do, you might not get yet. But I'm going to not withhold anything, but I'm going to present, I'm going to give you everything. And then you can respond to that. I'm going to give you everything. And so Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, laid it all out for us, made it absolutely clear, demonstrated God's love, gave us everything. And in a way, he put all his cards on the table, didn't hold any of them back, didn't hold any of them close to his chest. He just went, I love you. So in view of God's mercy, in view of God's incredible approach to us, in view of the incredible treasure that he is and that that relationship was the thing that we were made for and all these other props were just distractions along the way. It makes total sense. In fact, offering our bodies as living sacrifice, well, yes, it is a sacrifice. We heard that from Bill and Jen this morning. There is sacrifices to make. It is holy and pleasing to God. We believe that. It is true and proper worship. But the reward the reward, the reward, the reward far outweighs the cost. Can you stand with me? So I'm not, lots of people here this morning, you're all at different places in life and you're at different places even this week than you might have been last week. But maybe the Spirit of God is speaking to you, so I want to help you uh, take a step with that. The Spirit of God is speaking to you about what we're talking about, which is totally committing to God. Here, let me give you a little bit of note on this. You know, this is actually written to Christians. Some of you might at this moment say, oh, good, I hope those people who aren't followers of Jesus will really tune in on this. Well, this is a moment for both. Because offering ourselves to God is something that a non-Christian, so it's not the best phrase, but someone who hasn't crossed that line of faith yet can be doing this morning. If you're saying, 
man, I just haven't started with God yet, but I'd like to start today. This can be your day to begin. But also, if you are, have started to follow Jesus, but you realize that somehow that conduit through which God's greatest and best blessing flows, which is total commitment, isn't fully open. In the summer when I have a water fight with my boys, they have a super soaker, but I grab the hose. (laughs) And the hose is a superior weapon, but it has a great weakness. All one of my boys has to do is kink the hose. (laughs) And I'm done. And I think there's a lot of people spiritually who that's where they're at right now. You've got to, the, the hose of God's blessing, because they haven't fully committed, it's kinked. They're getting a little bit of a drip of a taste, a little drop of what God has for them in their lives. But if they would fully commit, if they say, God, I give you, I give you, I'm all in with you. I take all the chips and slide them into the middle of the table. I step away. And you can do what you want with my life. Or I write you a, a blank, I, I write you a blank check. I'll sign my name on the bottom, you fill in the amount. Because I trust you that you will not withhold any good thing from me. But your plan is better than anyone I could cook up. Then the hose, and then the blessing flows. And that's how God's designed it to be. Let's Let's just... Give some privacy to everyone here and just bow our, our, our heads and we'll close our eyes just for a moment. So I'm going to pray a prayer of total commitment. And if this is expressing the desire of your heart, you can pray it too. You just can say it silently, whisper it, or you just even can just think it. God's, what's happening in your heart is what God really cares about. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have made it a way possible for me to have relationship with you. And not just a bit of relationship with you. You want me to experience all the fullness of relationship with you that's possible. And so I, I now come to you desiring to have the great treasure of your plans, of your, of, of your transformation for me. All the, I've struggled to transform myself and rent, I've run into dead ends in certain areas for things that are too stubborn to change and I need you to change. Sometimes my plans don't work out like they should either and I need your better blueprint. So I come to you now and I, I offer myself I offer all of me. I offer uh, the parts that I think are working good and functioning fine. Maybe you'll have something to say about that later. I don't know. I offer the parts of my life that are broken and uh, need serious attention. I offer all my hang-ups, all my habits, all the hurts from my past. I bring them with me. I'm not going to wait to try to clean myself up, fix myself up, or try to present a better picture of myself. I just come clearly as I am right now, and I offer myself to you. I invite you to lead me 
into the future that you have with me. I say yes in advance to the things that you're going to call me to do. I say yes now, and uh, Lord, I trust you that you'll lead me into good things. Thank you that you're a good father. Thank you that you showed your mercy to me through Christ on the cross. Thank you that my sin is covered through that sacrifice as I come to you and ask for forgiveness. I'm all in. I'm all in with you today. Lead me into the next obedience that you have for me. In your name. Amen. Now just, if you can keep your heads bowed and eyes closed really quickly, because I've got just a little bit, one more step. If, if, I'm not, if you pray that prayer this morning, you say, this really reflects where I'm at, and I pray that prayer this morning because I really needed to do that. Um, I'm not, just raise your hand, just give me a wave. No one's looking around really quick, okay? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Okay. So you can look up now. I just want to say, the next right thing you know to do. The next right thing you know to do. God's not going to give you a map that shows you everything to do from now until the day he takes you home. He's going to show you the next right thing to do. Do you have it in your mind? If you don't, ask him. He can reveal it to you. You might just stumble upon it this afternoon. But the next right thing you know to do, that's the next step of being all in with God, of going on the whole journey with him, okay? So just take it a step at a time. Don't make it complicated. Don't freak out. Don't get all hyped up all over the top. Just the next right thing to do. You do that, and he'll tell you, he'll give you another one after, okay? We're going to turn things over to the worship team, and we're going to bring the prayer team down. If you need someone to pray with you this morning, the prayer team would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. There's different ones. If you haven't signed up for a life group, it's not too late. Dave Moore, Pastor Dave Moore is going to be at the info desk, and he'll help you get into a group that will help you grow. Okay? So God bless you. Have an incredible week. Make sure you take your children home with you. And uh, we're going to turn things over to the worship team, and we'll just continue to give God glory for his greatness in our lives.